Welcome to the Living Centered Podcast, where we enter into honest conversations about pursuing a more centered life, rediscovering, reclaiming, and rooting in to who we truly are. I'm your host, Miles Edcox. I'm your host, Lindsay Nobles. And I'm your host, Mackenzie Vogt. All right. Well, I'm so excited for this episode, Lindsay. I think it's going to be really fun as we recap some of the episodes over the last year. Can you believe we've almost been at this a year? I know. It's so crazy. I know. So we've been at it since February of 2021. And I really think this has been a dream for since I started in 2019. So I'm so excited that we made it happen this year. And we've had so many rich conversations. And as we were planning out the end of the year, I thought... We have so many awesome conversations. Why do we not just highlight a few of our favorites? So that's what this episode's going to be. Little best of. Little best of. So the best of 2021. Uh, so we kind of started by picking what are some of the favorite conversations we've had. And a lot of them have related to one another. I think that's been wild. And we've just been, if you've been a listener for a long time, you can see themes. And I think it's a part of, there's themes of the human experience, right? That we've seen come through time and time again in some of these interviews. And so... The first one, I felt like a lot of people have been really generous with their time and their knowledge and their own experience and their story and really creating space for us to hear more about them and the different unique ways that they're leaning into the whole breadth and fullness of themselves. Yeah. Some of my favorite episodes, I think Annie was an example of that. I think Annie in general like exudes her whole self. Annie F. Downs. Uh, Annie F. Downs. But there is a particular clip that you'll hear in a little bit where she just is kind of reframing what it is to be her and how she thought like doing therapeutic work was going to tame down parts of herself. But really, it just gave her more access to understand herself. Yeah, I thought it was so helpful in that conversation with Annie, how she gave voice to realizing that she had some expectations going into her Living Center program experience and then realizing that the experience was a little different than she thought it would be and that she didn't uh, have to diminish herself Mm -hmm. or her fullness, but that she just got to like learn to use her emotions differently. I don't love anything small. I mean, this is one of the things I've learned in therapy and in my time at Living Center and at Onsite is I thought the healthier I got emotionally that my feelings would regulate in size. (laughs) I thought I would like, I thought I would start to have normal size things. And the reality is my, my feelings have not changed in size. They've changed in breadth. I just have more of them. I experience more of them. Everything I feel is still big. And that actually was kind of hard for me at first because I thought, I thought this was part of what was broken that we were going to fix. And what God's showing me is that I was built this way. There's just more crayons available in the box than I was using. I was coloring hard either way. There's just more crayons. And so, and so Miles, everything I love, I love big. And so I'm, I'm going to be a big cheerleader. I don't have a lot of shame around people knowing that I'm fans of my friends. And so it's really fun for me. And if we're specifically talking about y'all and on-site, I mean, that was a a two-degree shift in my life that that y'all talk about a lot, the two-degree shift. And, and I say that as a nothing else in my life has ever been as big as two-degree shift, right? Like it is, I went to on-site, the Living Center program, January of 18, so three and a half years ago. And my life is so incredibly different now 
than it was that day I walked out. And But it didn't all change in one minute. It was a two-degree shift that's had my ship going somewhere else for the last couple of years. I think so often what I love about Annie is that we find parts of ourselves and we think we need to diminish them where just her natural zest for life is something that maybe she thought needed to be tamed down. And I think Laura, who talks about like her anxiety, is something that she always was trying to diminish when really IFS, internal family systems, that her entire episode talks about because she one specializes it and is also a patient um, and does that in her own clinical work, is all about recognizing the parts of themselves and creating space for them and allowing yourself access to those parts. If I'm honest, it was really hard for me to pick just one clip from Laura Ramey's episode. Laura Ramey helps lead our team at Milestones, and she's just brilliant. She has such an incredible way of grounding concepts that feel really big. So I hope that you enjoy this clip, um, and it can really show what IFS can offer us. Uh, we have, I've talked a time or two to some of our guests about, I've alluded to parts work and mm -hmm. parts of self. I think I did it one time when I was talking interpersonally about a part of me. Mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, someone asked one time, what's that come from? Mm -hmm. And I, I said, you know, there's a model called IFS, Internal Family Systems. But we've been wanting to do, talk to someone who's a bit of an expert on IFS because we find it to be really useful mm -hmm. as, as a modality, in, in particularly at milestones. But uh, one of the things I think that is really neat and unique about you is I think you see it uh, more than just a clinical modality, mm -hmm. but actually as a way of living and, and leading. And mm -hmm. I'd love to hear you say more about that. So I actually learned about internal family systems as a client. So I was already a clinician. I'd, you know, been trained in lots of different modalities. And then a friend and colleague said, have you heard of IFS? And I needed, wanted a new therapist at the time. So I said, well, I'll just go get it as my own therapy. <laughs> and I <laughs> fell in love with it. Like mm. it just changed my life. It felt magical. And I was determined to get trained in it. And it's one of those modalities that it really does take a lot of time to get trained, but I was determined. I mean, that's another thing about me. Once I get my mind made up on uh -huh. something, I'm going to do it. <laughs> and I did. A part of me was determined. So I did my level one training, and then I just finished my level two training. And the reason why it is so important to me or made such a difference to me is because it was the first time that I learned a model that for me all parts were welcome. Nothing was mm. pathologized. Mm. Everything was seen as a protective behavior. Mm. And there's some kind of pain or trauma going on underneath it. And that's why we act out in certain ways or why different parts show up to protect us. You know, and so an example for me is that I lived most of my life with anxiety and, and still do. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I would just shame myself for, oh, gosh, here's that anxiety again. I'm being so I'm stressing out or I'm being so anxious. And I would really beat myself up about that. And then when I started doing parts work and learned, well, my anxiety shows up to tell me something mm -hmm. that I need to know. So mm -hmm. I now think of anxiety like the light on the dashboard of my car. Mm -hmm. 
when it comes on, it's a part of me saying, hey, pay attention. Something's going on. You need something. And I've learned to really sink in and get curious and compassionate. Those are two of the core self-sees. Um, one of the components of IFS is that we have this core self, and then the other parts of us show up in protection uh, of our burdens. And so when I lean into my anxiety with curiosity and compassion and I learn what it needs, then I can be more grounded. Mm. I can I can really sink in and and do what I need to do to take care of that part of me. So it's just turned my life around. And and as you said, I don't just use it as a modality with my clients. I do it in every aspect of my life. Well, as a parent, as a leader at Milestones, as a wife, wherever I am, I try to think of it as um, I'm a person with parts, you're a person with parts, right? And we're in our interactions with each other, we're going to get triggered. And so it's just, it's a very relational, loving, compassionate model that I really believe in. I love this description of how she talks about her anxiety and how her relationship with that has really changed. What did you like about this episode? Yeah, I think Laura just coming at it, her whole episode was so great. But she really shows up and you see uh, the richness of the roles that she's playing in life. She's been leading milestones. She is a new uh, mother to a two-year-old after having adopted some kids. And then she is also just this individual human. And so I think the fullness that she brings all throughout the interview, but in this part in particular, is just fascinating. Super fascinating. Another interview that we did was with Morgan Harper Nichols. And I, the idea of fixing yourself and how Laura was talking about so often in her therapy, she felt like she was trying to just get rid of this. And Morgan Harper Nichols talks about her own experience having gotten, we, I mean, she interviewed with us, what, two or three weeks after she was diagnosed um, and got a autism spectrum diagnosis. And it was something that was, she was talking to the internet about, and we happened to just have an interview with her at that time. And so it was like really fresh and really beautiful. And her interview was just so real. And she just said like, this diagnosis gave myself permission to take off the pressure. Like that was so much of her interview was like, let me take the pressure off of myself because she had been trying to fix herself when in, there was a whole part of herself she wasn't able to access because she just didn't have language around it. And it was really striking to me that sometimes when we can put language on ourselves, we can then own ourselves in a better way and really live into our own reality. About a week and a half ago, I actually uh, got a diagnosis that I am on the autism spectrum. And I, it's one of those things that was simultaneous new information. However, simultaneously, it made a lot of things make sense. I have the, the whole struggling with connection thing. I was like, oh, there's something way bigger that, that explains that, that I did not have language for up until recently. And um, yeah, just, just within that, it, it has just been um, like feeling like, just very separate from others, even people that I'm close to, people that I love, just feeling like everyone's in on the joke and I'm not, and I'm just trying to catch up. And I just have so many experiences like that in my life. And I think the biggest sort of struggle within that was not that itself, but the fact that I, for a very long time, put the blame on myself for it. 
I would say, well, I'm the problem. I've got to fix this. I've got to be better at connecting with people. I, it's on me. I'm an adult. <laughs> I have to work through this. I'm putting all this pressure on myself to just try to, to function in a way that maybe I wasn't even meant to, <laughs> but just all of these unspoken things, even just in society, like no one, no one says to me, oh, Morgan, you should do this. You should socialize in this way. <laughs> like people don't necessarily say that, but it's just messages that I was receiving of just like, there's a way you're supposed to be in the world. There's a way you're supposed to cope. There's a way you're supposed to function. And if you can't function that way, then it's your fault. And I had an experience where I went to a doctor when I was 27 and it was just like my primary care physician. And I just told him, it was the first time I ever said any of this out loud. I, but I've been researching and I, I was studying and I asked him, I was like, I, I think I could possibly be on the autism spectrum. I was like, I'm not sure, but maybe you could just direct me as to who someone just to talk to. <laughs> I was like, I don't know. And, and he, before, like, didn't even look up from his clipboard and was just like, you have nothing to worry about. You're perfectly normal. <laughs> and I, I, unfortunately I took his word and I took that as, okay, well, this is something I have to fix. Like the problems that I'm struggling with are things that I've got to fix on my own. And that's just what I told myself for way too long. And honestly, it wasn't until the other day, literally less than two weeks ago, when I got my official diagnosis and the specialist looked at me and, and explained everything to me. And she ended it with, and it's not your fault. Mm. And I just lost it. I, 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 I feel like in that moment, I cried like decades worth of tears of just like, Oh, wait a second. Yeah, I struggle, but I, I've been putting that all on myself, taking responsibility for every little thing and just, just piling that onto myself. So I would say that, I mean, it's actually pretty new for me <laughs> where I am right now of, of learning that two things can happen at once. Like you can be struggling and also like not be putting all that blame on yourself and putting all the responsibility on yourself to fix it. And that's been very hard for me because somewhere, I don't know if it's because I'm the oldest child or what, <laughs> somewhere along the way, I just, I just took it on. It's like, yep, you got to fix that. And, and I feel like I am, I am very much so in process of unlearning that for sure. So um, I feel like that's even kind of easing out into my work. I feel like everything I've written over the past week has been like releasing pressure from yourself. Like stop putting so much pressure on yourself because that is what I am telling myself because I, I've done that so much and, and I'm discovering that I'm not the only person who, who does that for sure. I think I revealed in this episode that Morgan is one of my favorite Instagram follows. And I think that part Absolutely. of her really unique gifting in the world is putting like basic words to things that so many of us experience. And that when you follow her on Instagram, you're like, yes, me too. And even her talking about this new diagnosis, the way that she talks about having language around it and then realizing that the freedom mm -hmm. in that yeah. was just so helpful. It makes me think of, we just did an interview about the Enneagram that's coming out in a few weeks for all of you. And there's so much power in not only just having language to better understand yourself, but it's an invitation to continue to do the work, to really own that, 
um, and develop from it. You know, I love talking to Hillary McBride. She was one of my favorite interviews of the whole year just because she's somebody I followed for a long time but didn't know it all. And um, the way that she describes like our relationships with our bodies Mm -hmm. and how we could have a more graceful view of our bodies and a more loving view of our bodies was so transformative to me. I, somebody that personally has struggled uh, with an eating disorder and just to be able to like learn from Hillary and um, think more holistically about all the wonderful things my body does for me. So helpful. So good. I loved this interview. At that point, I was not, I was just producing and sitting in on all these interviews. And I just sat probably the entire interview with my mouth agape. Like, I love Hillary. I went on to then read a book by her called um, Mother's Daughters and Body Image. And then I just got her brand new book. And it's been so transformative just in the season of life that I am, where I'm really trying to lean into embodiment. But That was the first time I had even heard the word embodiment was in this interview, and it really led me on a path of of discovery. So it's been super awesome. Here is Hillary. What's a message you'd want to redistribute collectively that you feel humanity could benefit most from uh, now? Mm. Do I have to pick one? Uh, <laughs> a few yeah, yeah, yeah. cycling that are coming to mind and and these are just as much for humanity as they are for me but a renegotiating the origin of the self as always having been good mm. like that we started good that we're good and that all of the things that we look at and label pathology illness destruction all of those things are not proof that we are bad. They're proof that we've been hurt and never been taught how to heal. So good. So we're good. That's always been the case. And when we remember that we can turn towards each other and turn towards ourselves in a way that heals the things that, that didn't get the care they need that tend to work themselves out and hurt other people or hurt us. So there's that piece. And then I think the other primary piece is that your body is not an object not an object for anybody else to use or to evaluate or to attribute power or to take power from. Your body is the place where life happens. Your body is good. Your body is a deep, deeply woven, um, is deeply interwoven with your sense of self. And as much as we live in a culture which has pulled us from our bodies and made us think that our bodies are the problems Maybe those stories about bodies are the problems, not bodies themselves. And that when we know that about ourself, then we start to want to pull apart some of these hierarchies that really do keep certain bodies in positions of disempowerment and marginalization. And I think the the subtext through all of that is there is no such thing as healing ourselves without healing our culture. And there's no such thing as healing the people and the relationships and the communities around us without also being transformed and reconciled to ourself. And in that way, everything is deeply interconnected. I love how this clip ends. And she just talks about the necessity for us to not only find healing for ourselves, 
but how that can lead out and to affect everyone around us. That I think we talk about that at Onsite a lot is that healing begets healing. And when we give ourselves permission to get healthy, then we give other people permission. And we really, the best way to reconnect the world is to reconnect to ourselves. And so I know that was a lot of taglines, boom, boom, boom. But I think there's such a critical part of any individual work is going to have an impact on your community if you're doing it um, yeah. in the right spirit. So kind of combats the idea that taking time to do this kind of work is selfish. Right. It's selfless. Let that be what you take away from this interview today is that it's selfless to do the work and you are worth it. Um, Speaking of community, I think community is not always easy. I think we've been in a really hard year. Yeah. Uh, You were just talking about the divisiveness uh, in a different conversation we were having today that it's hard because Lines have been drawn and we're more polarized than we ever have been. Um, and someone that I think navigates this really well is Carlos Whitaker. Yes. And you are you are real life friends with Carlos, right? I am a friend of Carlos and his wife, Heather. And um, it's really been cool to be close to Carlos and to watch how he's transformed both his platform, but also just personally in the last couple of years, he's really leaned into his identity as a biracial man and um, just really has publicly helped foster a lot of conversations with a lot of grace and hope about just helping people understand some of the complex issues that we're navigating right now. Yeah. um, Something he says, he said in the interview with us is that he's, his little catchphrase is don't stand on issues, but walk with people. And I think he's done that in a way that's been really invitational. Um, It has not been passive. It's been very assertive, but it has not been aggressive in the way that he the way that he shows up on social media and the way that he shows up in his own life. And so he gave us a really beautiful gift by talking about a real example in his life that he's got two friends uh, who are on opposite sides of an issue with him and how their two approaches really impacted him and their relationship. Um, And so it was an encouragement to me that even if we are in relationship with people who think differently about different ideologies, about religion, about race, about any of the hot topic issues that I think really divide us, that there is room to create space for each other, to talk about things and to lovingly challenge. I thought it was a really beautiful example. Yeah, yeah, I say it it all the time. It's kind of my little catchphrase don't stand on issues, but walk with people. Mm. And that's just saying that every single day to me is like, okay, we stand on different parts of an issue, but if I just walk with them, that's where, that's where healing is going to come. So. Yeah. I love the idea of just assuming positive intent too. Yeah. Yeah. That it's like, even if somebody and I disagree on the issue, trusting that their motivation yes. for that deeply held belief is that yes. they want like good for people in the world. Yes. Mm. Trusting that because even if you disagree on something very important, where they're coming from, well, we'll start with us. Where we're coming from is based on, on something that is true to us. Yeah. Okay. So there's truth involved. Where they're coming from is based on something that's very true to them. And so like just knowing that whether it be something traumatic that has happened to them at some point in their life that has brought them to this place of belief, like mm-hmm. I always go go even farther back than whatever it is we disagree with. I'm like, no, let's go back even farther. Like what what caused them to begin to believe this or or support this? 
And like, if you can get past that, whatever the issue is and get to the human part of whatever the trauma is or whatever the, the moment was where something broke or mm-hmm. something healed. Gosh, if we can get to there with each other, uh, so it's just going to accelerate healing. You yeah. Know? I also like the idea of like knowing that the, if we don't, bridge the divide it's just going to keep growing and so we have to lean into each other yeah yeah and you talked earlier about you know friends that have been hurtful has there any friends that have like really leaned in and sort of helped be a bridge to you in this season and what what does that like practically look like because i think a lot of times people don't know how to do that well yes yes Oh, I love that question. I don't know how to do that well, so tell me. Yeah, <laughs> I don't necessarily know how to do that well, but I've seen it done well yeah. to me. Yeah, And I've seen it done well in, here's the deal. At the end of the day, people that you are friends with that see things differently than you, mm-hmm. I don't even think we're trying to change each other's mind as much as we're trying to just be seen. Mm. And so for me... As I've stepped into this new space of educating people on race, educating people on um, things, I have a lot of friends of mine that don't believe that racism is as big of a problem mm. as I believe it is. So we stand completely differently here. I have two relationships in particular. These are like the, the same version of human and version of friends. They hold different places in my heart. But if you look at how they were raised, they live in California, um, super conservative, white dudes, that love me. We've been best friends for a long time. We just look at the world through different lenses. One of them mm-hmm. made a decision. Oh, okay. And, and both of them hold the same job. Okay. I'll just put it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have the same job. One of them made it, has, has made it his goal in life to convince me to see the world the way I need to see it. Mm-hmm. Right. And so like, it's been like articles and YouTubes and I mean, that's what he sends me. The other one <laughs> who still sees the world through this one has made it his goal in our relationship this year to see the world through my eyes. Mm. Oh, I'm not going to cry, but mm. I'm telling you the, I feel so seen by this one and the, 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 the relationship that friend number two or B and I have now is, I mean, I will do any, I'll take a bullet for this guy. And guess what? We still voted differently in November. Mm-hmm. We still, but man, he sees me and I see him. And um, that's that's what I think we need to be doing. Well, we need to be empathizing. We need to be looking through the eyes of those that we disagree with. Not not again. Not to just not to be convinced to think differently, but just to see. And that's Brene Brown's mm-hmm. again. You can't hate somebody that you're so close to face to face with. Uh, and that's what, that's, that's what we need to be doing. So yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was, Ooh, I mean that I, those relationships right there, uh, I've got a lot more work to do with, with friend a, but friend B well, there's zero work I got to do, man. Like we're, yeah. we're, we're there. <sighs> I just, if you really love Carlos, go and check out his podcast. He has a podcast every week but we felt so honored that he came and spent time with us. Now, Lindsay, this is an interview that I was obsessed with because I am obsessed with Sean and Equist. I was so jealous that you and Miles did it together. I was sitting again, a fly on a wall, and I was just so excited because Shauna is one of my favorite people. Her <laughs> books have changed my life, and I'm Shana's fangirling awesome. over here. But this particular interview was really good. I think it was timely for a lot of us who are 
navigating what relationships and friendships can look like in a post quote unquote pandemic world. Cause COVID was hard on relationships. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, uh, Shauna just has such a spirit of, uh, humility and she talked about really owning mm-hmm. sort of when she had let people down yeah. and just being honest and forgiving herself and allowing other people to forgive her for seasons when she showed up less than she wanted to. But I think it, hearing her uh, was really gave me grace for myself too of like, hey, we don't always have to be the perfect friend. That's not realistic yeah. all the time that we'll go through seasons where it's harder to show up and we don't have as much to give and that's okay. We can be honest about that. And then we just need to um, create the kind of relationships where we address things head on Yeah, and be willing to say it. And be willing for it to be a little bit awkward. Like she talks about that. It's going to be clumsy. It's going to be awkward if you haven't talked to someone in six months because you just frankly didn't have the relational capacity. And so I think she's such a beautiful builder of community. And so to hear her say that, I felt like, oh, well, I can do that then. (laughs) Yeah, totally. I think a lot of people right now are talking about having lost touch with some people or not having the relational capacity they used to have, being out of touch with people they really care about. And when you said, you know, I wanted to pick up the phone, but I also felt a little guilty. I think that's the moment there, right? You have two options. You either pick up the phone and say, I got it wrong, but I care about you and I'd love to try again, or you never pick up the phone. And there's no opportunity there then for relationship or for growth or for connection. And so I think even if it's awkward, even if it requires an apology, even if it feels like the first couple minutes are sort of stilted or funny, or we haven't heard each other's voices for a while, I think when we talk about resets and new normals and new beginnings, wouldn't it be wonderful if one of the things that came out of the pandemic was a tenderness and willingness for all of us to give each other second chances, to try again, to listen to what other people have been carrying that we might not know about. That's something that's been so striking for me. Well, I mean, on a very personal level, some of the reason it's important to me is because I, I've had a really hard couple years. Some of the things, and some of them are things that I've talked about and some of them are not, but in the course of major life change and a big move and a lot of different things shifting in my life, there are a lot of things that I got wrong. There were relationships that I didn't put enough effort into. There were misunderstandings that I let grow. And I joke about it sometimes. It's not really funny, but it, um, I'm getting really, really good at apologizing and asking for second chances. And I think that's the way through. I think relationships depend on our willingness to apologize and forgive. There's this, I think, kind of abstract idea we have that when something goes wrong in a friendship, it's over. I think when something goes wrong in a friendship, it's normal, right? We just, and if you can't apologize often and quickly, and if you can't forgive often and quickly, you can't have long-term meaningful relationships. And so I'm so grateful that several of the people that I treasure most in my life have given me second and third and 50th chances. And it makes me want to give second and third and 50th chances. I think 
if our relationships depend on perfect performance, we're going to end up really isolated, every one of us. And I have made so many mistakes in the last couple of years. And I'm so deeply grateful that the people in my life are giving me chances to prove myself to them again. So I want to be that kind of person with other people in my life. Hey friends, Mackenzie here. I brought in my friend, Hannah Warren, who is our director of marketing to talk to you about one of our favorite subjects. Hannah? Digital! Mackenzie, thank you for having me here today to talk about, yeah, one of our favorite things, which is our online resources. Um, You and I and the rest of our team are so passionate about our online resources because Mm -hmm. we are on a mission to make mental health affordable and accessible. We know that some of our in-person programs are really out of reach, um, whether it be financially or from a time-wise. And sometimes it may not just be the right time for you to come to an in-person program, but we do not want that to limit your engagement with investment investing in your emotional wellness and your health. And so that's why I love our emotional wellness classes and our courses that kind of equip people in their journey. So I'm excited to talk about it with you today. Awesome. I'm super excited. And I think it's the holiday season. We're getting up to it. Um, How are you doing on your holiday shopping? I'm going to be honest. I'm a little bit behind and that can feel stressful and overwhelming. Um, But I don't know about you. I think this year more than any year in the past, I've felt like I want to give gifts that matter and gifts with meaning and purpose Um, because I think most of us don't need another thing. I think after the last couple of years, maybe we've collected things or just kind of changed our opinions about things and we Mm -hmm. are now... um, kind of trying to harvest experiences and opportunities to grow. And so that's why I love the idea of gifting our emotional wellness masterclasses in our courses. And it's a great resource because we're down to the wire now. And if you're still looking for a gift to give someone, um, this is an amazing opportunity to do that. So I think when it comes to giving the gift of emotional wellness or giving an emotional wellness digital resource, I think I would be super excited about that, but kind of nervous. And so Mm -hmm. we thought, what a better way to give this gift to someone else. And we always joke, like, we'll give you the gift of going second. And you can give someone in your life the gift of going second by buying a class and doing it together. So we're going to give you 50% off of a class so that for the price of one class, you and a friend or a family member or a mentor can take it together. And so if you use the code GIFT, you will get 50% off uh, any one of our digital classes. So we've got classes on grief, trauma, shame, community, emotions. We just think this is such a great resource that we wanted to equip it and get it in your hands. And if you're a little bit behind on your shopping, this is going to end up in your inbox today as soon as you purchase. Yeah, I love that idea because it really is giving the gift to other people, but also investing in your own emotional health. And so Mm -hmm. what better gift can we give other people than investing in our emotional wellness? Because we're going to show up better for those around us as well. I think there's just something about doing it together. It's so awesome. Yeah. So if you're still looking for a gift, whether that's for a loved one or for yourself, we encourage you to do that, maybe for both of you, um, and check out any of our emotional wellness masterclasses at onsiteworkshops.com backslash digital and save 50% on all our classes with the code GIFT. One of the big ahas that a lot of people have when they come to our programs, especially Living Center program, is that they've experienced trauma in some way. And yeah. so a lot of us that had really great family upbringings and didn't have anything catastrophic that happened, mm-hmm. aren't familiar with owning trauma that's happened in our lives. And so I think that's a big uh, theme for a lot of people, a lot of alumni in particular, um, and some of our therapists to just help people see 
trauma as anything less than nurturing, I think yeah. is what Carlos Martinez, one of our clinicians, says to describe of trauma and that, that we all have experienced trauma, yeah. if that's the definition. And so beginning to own that uh, was a huge theme through several episodes of the Living Center podcast this year. Yeah, I, f- I feel like we are in a season where people are hungry for making sense of their story. And you can see that in these podcast episodes, that they are some of our most listened to. People are seeking it out um, and really resonating with what people are sharing. And I think it's important to kind of start this conversation about an understanding of our access to mental health. And I think Courtney, who is a legendary on-site guide, she was really caring with and really generous with her time and sharing about the deep history, um, especially with the black community. She was talking about people of color, but really the black community and their access to mental health, the necessity to have safety in doing this work and why she as a black woman finds it's really important for her community and why she loves to help people and walk people through their stories in this way. Um, one of the things she says is that bringing healing from the inside, um, that she's a part of the system, she understands it, but then she approaches it very differently. And I think sometimes when we've experienced trauma, our fear going into therapy is, I have to dive right into it. And she even says in her interview, like, we're not gonna dive right into the worst of your trauma. It's going to be really intentional. And it gave me a lot of um, a lot of appreciation for the brilliant clinicians that we get to have on our campus week in and week out. Courtney also referenced at one point in her interview, mm-hmm. you know, we always say that we want this to be a safe space for people. Yeah. And that just owning that that isn't inherently true. Yeah. That we can do everything we can to try to create a container where people feel a deeper level of emotional safety and a deeper level of emotional care, mm-hmm. but that sometimes we can't create a safe space for everybody. Yeah, and just owning and recognizing that. I don't know if y'all saw the APA just released a massive apology to the BIPOC community. Uh, and I mean, like, and and they did a good job of like, not only admitting like, this is the harm we did and this is how long we pretended like we did it. Um, you know what I mean? But so the origins come from, you know, oppression. They come mm-hmm. from the belief, you know, when you look at therapy in its complete beginning, really only rich white men who owned land could go to therapy. I don't know if... In the even 60s and 70s, if it was safe to do the work, Mm. you know, because what the work has done for me is it's given me my voice back. It has caused me to set boundaries. It has caused me to speak my truth. And if I'm honest, in the 50s, doing my like, who like who were you going to set a boundary with in the 50s in the South? Like, you know, Mr. So-and-so, now I'm I'm a grown man. I'm not going to respond to you calling me boy. That could get you killed. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know if it was safe to do the work, even when things started to shift and the work was being offered. I don't know if it was safe. And I think another part is, I don't know if there were enough therapists of color being allowed because therapy started to be, open to everyone, but being trained as a therapist wasn't, you know, they weren't getting into the colleges and receiving the degrees and expertise that would allow them to provide the therapy. And so then you're being asked to bear your soul 
And it doesn't feel like it's a safe space, A, because we've been, you know, code switching as a trauma response. And then B, because does this person really get it? Are they going to use this against me? You know, I think about all of the people, you know, in the 80s, women who would admit that their husband was still living at home and then they would lose their assistance. You know what I mean? Like, or it was, or I have to put my husband out so that I can feed my children because we're in a crisis. You know what I mean? Like, I just don't, like, it's not made up. Mm -hmm. I think that we have to start with the gaslighting of, oh, you could have been going to therapy. No, no, you could not have. That's, that's not, that's not true. And so it's in part, again, the APA, you know, white therapist owning that and then therapists like me speaking out and saying, I get it. And we're doing the work from the inside. It's just so layered and nuanced and it's not made up. And so I think the first thing is to validate you're smart to not trust. So what feels safe right now? You know, maybe your first session isn't about your childhood trauma. It's about the chick who sits beside you at work that you can't stand. Start there. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's about just that you're tired and we talk about ways to help you get better sleep. You know, let's ease in in a way that feels Mm. safe. We got all the time we need. I think when we hear the word trauma, it feels really big and nebulous and kind of confusing. Um, And so we this this clip is taking all the way back to our launch with Mike McCarg, who is Science Mike. Um, And he has such a beautiful way of just taking really hard concepts and making them simple And so when I was listening in on this podcast originally, I thought I have heard someone describe to me what happens in the brain when we experience trauma probably 10 times, but I got it when I heard it this time because he just was so practical and and the way that he approaches things is so um, intentional. I just, I love this interview. And I think there was so much from this interview that was so encouraging like he talked about his feelings chair at one point and how he has like a set aside space where he, this is the only intention for this chair is to feel. And I just, he just showed up so quirky and so fun in this interview. Yeah. He, Mike is brilliant. It is always so fun to learn from him and to hear what he's thinking about and how he, uh, the words that he puts to articulate, like you said, complex concepts. Mm-hmm. And so I, I I think the whole time that he did his interview, I just had my mouth agape. Just like, <laughs> what what is he saying? It's just so amazing. I love learning from him. There's a wonderful but dated understanding of our brains called the triune brain model, which basically subdivides a human brain into three layers called the neocortex, the limbic system, and the brainstem, or uh, also sometimes called the neomammalian and paleomammalian and reptile brains. Uh, No one can remember that. So I call them the person, the puppy, and the crocodile. (laughs) The crocodile is that deepest part of your brain. It is your survival brain. It regulates your aggressive responses, your uh, bodily systems, your respiration. And notably, the crocodile has the closest proximity to your spinal column and the rest of your body. It gets first and last say about how the brain will interact with the body. And then right on top of that, kind of wrapped around it, is the puppy. That's our emotional and social brain. It wants to be liked. It wants to be loved. It wants touch. It wants sensual experiences. It uh, 
The crocodile is happy to just get nutrition, but the puppy would like some flavor along with it, right? So this is where we get more into the mammalian brain structures. And then wrapped around that, uh, about as thick as a dinner napkin and about the same size, if you stretch it out, would be our neocortex. This is the most structurally complex neuronal arrangement in our brains. This is where our executive function lives, where language and philosophy and music and advanced visual processing and advanced tactile processing, the things that are the most uniquely human features of the human brain are in the neocortex, which I call the person. And if we think about kind of a an everyday moment that might happen. And I'll imagine that you're in a grocery store right in the middle of this pandemic and everyone's wearing their masks and they're standing six feet apart and doing everything right. And I want you to imagine, I'm sure this has never happened anywhere, that someone cuts in line uh, and they're wearing a, you know, an American flag uh, tank top and they've got a, a little basket with you know a 24-pack of cores and a Maxim magazine. That's all that's in there. And everybody else is trying to do the right thing. This person cuts in line in front of everyone and tries to go straight to the checkout counter, violating every social norm we know of. In that moment, we see the person, the puppy, and the crocodile go into action. The crocodile's the fastest. So the crocodile goes, whoa, territorial intrusion. Let's get them, right? And then the puppy is just almost as fast as the crocodile and pops in and goes, but wait, what if they're a friend? And so the puppy wants to wait on this aggression <laughs> signal to see if we know the person or not, which the puppy can actually figure out really quickly. And if it turns out that's not a friend, then the puppy bears his teeth and says, you're right, crocodile, let's get them. Meanwhile, from their lofty post in the top of the skull, the person brain is reading a newspaper and looks down and goes, whoa, something's happening in the brain-body system. I guess I should pay attention to this instead of whatever I was thinking about. And they realize, oh, wow, my fight-or-flight system is activated. I'm about to punch another human person, but that could affect my reputation, and there's laws, and there's all these things I know about that the puppy and the crocodile don't. And so the person brain goes, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. We can't hit them. But by now, there's like this energy in the brain-body system where the puppy and the crocodile have to do something. By now, our face is hot. Our hands are cold. There's a burning in our belly. This emotional energy has to go somewhere. And so the person goes, I know exactly what we'll do. You two hold on and says out loud, well, I guess some people just don't know the rules. And we say a <laughs> passive-aggressive comment. And the puppy and the crocodile high-five, and the person <laughs> goes back to daydreaming, right? These three layers of the brain do what they do every moment of our lives. Mm. When we talk about trauma, we are talking about experiences that have been encoded where? The puppy and the crocodile. Why? Trauma predates cognition. If you mm. can imagine a fish swimming in the sea. And there's a shadow that passes overhead, and suddenly a blinding pain as something big and toothy bites into this fish. It struggles and survives and swims away, but it bleeds and it almost dies. That's trauma, and trauma exists to keep us alive. Why? Because the next time that fish is swimming through the water, weeks later, now healed, and a shadow passes over in the water, that fish is going to swim as fast as it can. Whether that shadow is a big fish or a wave doesn't matter. What matters is the fish stays alive. 
And when we understand trauma from a neuroanatomical perspective, we understand trauma gets encoded into the brainstem and the limbic system primarily. Well, our ability to observe, to analyze, and to plan lives out in the person brain, in the neocortex. So the discipline we build as trauma survivors is being able to train our person to look at non-judgmentally what the puppy and the crocodile are doing in response to trauma. Jonathan Merritt's interview was another one of my favorites. He does such a great job of referencing his own story and sort of talking about the intersection of psychology Mm -hmm. and spirituality and how those things converge and overlap for him and sort of how he is on this journey to find healing, what catalyzed that journey. Um, He just was so open and honest and vulnerable, but also I felt like it was really practical in helping me begin to pull together things that often live in separate places in my own mind. Yeah, I think in the interview, the two of you talked about for so long, it's like religion on one side and psychology on the other, and they are opposed when really they complement and can come together in a cohesive way to really help us fully understand ourselves because we're integrated beings, right? Like we are mental, physical, emotional, spiritual beings. And so I just love this interview. You know, I know a lot of people whose journey toward understanding their own trauma began with a whisper. You know, Mm. it was like they started to see that things weren't uh, working. It was kind of um, an inkling. Yeah. And I didn't have that experience. My journey toward trauma healing began with a rupture. I was in, in 2012, I was leading as a teaching pastor at my dad's megachurch. I was, you know, writing and my writing career was taking off. I'd published some books and I'd published a lot of articles. And I was publicly outed in the national press. And, you know, that was hard in a way that other hard things weren't hard. There, There was a unique kind of pain from having a delicate story that is only yours to tell stolen from you and then told for you in a way that you would never have told it. And uh, conversations that should have spanned months were all condensed into a few days. And I was having to have them with sort of the cadence of machine gun fire in a distressed state. You know, coupling that with the the yeah. the community that I was a part of, which you know the evangelical community, it was coupled with risks to my belonging in my family, my belonging in my faith community, my ability to make money and pay the bills, my livelihood, my friendships were often irrevocably changed, you know, against my will. It was a it was a rupture down to my core. 
And I find that people who experience these kinds of ruptures, you know, can go one way or the other. They can retrench into the habits that that sort of contributed to the rupture uh, that prevented those things from from healing in years past, or they can take the unknown path. But I went out to an intensive program and I went out there thinking that I was going to have long conversations day after day about my sexual orientation. And I did not. Right. Uh, we, we, had, we had some conversations about that. What we talked about instead was, you know, as he said to me, most of us, Jonathan, spend the majority of our lives trying to sort through everything that happened to us between five and 15. Mm. And that was true for me. And there were wounds, gaping wounds, that I had been blind to, that I had rationalized away, that I, you know, was in denial about. And I was able in this gentle, loving setting to begin to see the power of what it means to tell the truth to yourself. And, you know, Scott Peck has said that mental health is a commitment to face reality at all costs. I often have wondered what would it meant, what, what would it have meant for me if telling the truth hadn't come with such a high cost? I probably would have told the truth when I was 20 and not 30 yeah. about all sorts of things. The healing journey would have began earlier, but for me, it began at 30 and it's been ongoing since then. It's taken on different forms and different shapes. And anytime you step into that space, anytime you offer whole parts of yourself that have been locked in closets and you open that up, right, to divine light and love to fresh air, to your own observation, to the wisdom of trustworthy guides, it changes you. And yeah. so I have been in a process, a decade long process almost now of rapid transformation at every level of my being, emotionally, physically, spiritually. You know, it, it has not been up and to the right, I'll tell yeah. you. But I do believe that while so many of us have welcomed psychology and medicine to the table, spirituality hasn't always been welcomed at that conversation. And uh, the majority of what we know about trauma, its impacts on us, and the path to healing have been learned over the last 125 years or so primarily uh, through these two fields of medicine and psychology. And uh, I think that can only lead us to a partial healing. I think there is a whole part of us that needs to be welcomed to this conversation to understand the spiritual impacts of physical and psychological traumas and to understand the spiritual tools that can enhance, accelerate, and even to take us to greater depths that we never thought possible in the trauma healing. It was really hard to choose 11 episodes or however many episodes that we picked. There were so many good ones this year. And I think as we round out our last two, 
the theme for these two really does feel like resiliency and hope because that is what I have found over a year of interviews is that the human spirit is so resilient. Um, and it doesn't matter if we've experienced small trauma, big trauma, all of us have had woundings and all of us have the capability um, within ourselves to return home to ourselves and find purpose and meaning and really pursue um, the person that we were meant to be. And I think the last two people on here uh, are two of my favorite interviews in the whole year. And that is uh, Mark Pimsler, who is one of our incredible onsite clinicians. He's on our staff. And it was really fun because Miles and I got to sit down and hear his story, which I don't think I often get to do. He is such a an agent of healing and walks with people through their stories that I don't often get to turn the tables and hear his story. So it was a really fun interview. Yeah. It was so revealing to hear some of Mark's story and what shaped him and has gotten him where he is. And it's just a reminder that we can overcome hard things, but we Mm -hmm. have to be willing to do the work. And Mark really um, has done that. He's done the work. And so I think sometimes resilience feels like something that you just have or don't have, but the part of what we need to show up with is the willingness to lean in to our own story, be honest about it, and make the changes and the repairs and Mm. uncover the parts of ourselves that we may have hidden along the way. And what I kept thinking about in his interview was how graceful he was to his former self. Um, He talks about being an addict and he talks about some of the decisions that came out of that. But he, I've heard him say it before and he said it in this interview is that he's grateful for drugs and alcohol because they kept him alive. And not often, you don't hear an addict say that, but I think he was so graceful to understand that we don't take on destructive patterns out of nowhere, um, that they kept us alive. And I think sometimes we need to take the space to honor the ways that we've survived and the resiliency that we've showed up, even if it hasn't been quote unquote in the healthiest way, like it's made room for us to then find health on the other side of that. My story really has been just fraught with these feelings of just not belonging. Um, I can remember as even a three and four year old just having stories of feeling like I just don't fit in. By three and four, I was already having problems. I barely graduated preschool by the skin of my teeth. (laughs) And quite frankly, that was the last thing I graduated until I got into recovery. Um, So when I was seven, my mom had um, reached out uh, to find some help for me because Mm -hmm. I was just really struggling. I was just super angry. I had already then, by then, um, been sexually abused, um, not by a family member, but um, someone in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And um, I was just angry to be in the world. I was an angry (laughs) five-year-old. So by the time I was seven, my mom uh, found a place and um, they had recommended that I actually go inpatient. And um, so I was admitted to a psychiatric institute at seven years old. I was there for a year. And I experienced tons of institutional abuse. In fact, shortly after I left that facility, they actually got closed down for instances of institutional abuse. Mm. Um, Got drunk for the first time when I was eight years old. Uh, I I tell people I waited as long as I could. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, and then for the next several years, uh, almost actually two decades, used alcohol and other drugs Mm. as a way of escaping 
if I couldn't be in the world, then I needed to find a way to escape. And um, quite frankly, alcohol and drugs saved my life. Um, I would literally not be here today if it had not been for finding ways of just being in myself and my body. Um, So then when I was 26, I got sober and found uh, a recovery process that really worked for me. And, uh, yeah, and that just brought me here. Um, another piece of that was, uh, coming into my own identity, uh, as a gay man, uh, was just one more example of me not feeling like I belonged in this world or found myself mirrored in the world that I was in, mm-hmm. um, and so I came out in Corpus Christi, Texas, in uh, <laughs> the, um, I think it was like the mid 90s. Uh, I was 15 years old. And that also was just super, super hard. Yeah. And so, um, so yeah, I just had lots of examples of challenges along the way. Wow. Thanks for sharing that. I, I, am, I just kind of am struck at seven. You know, that's where I stopped. I was, I was, I was tracking the rest of your story and I know you pushed through there and shared a lot Mm -hmm. in a little bit of time. And I'm curious about your process in, I know you and I both are big believers in going back and kind of reclaiming uh, and reparenting those parts of ourselves that maybe didn't get what they needed at the time. Call it some, call it inner child work Mm -hmm. for some people that, that uh, title doesn't fit. So whatever it is, just reclaiming that authentic part. Uh, before the world told it what it needed to be. What was that? What's that process been like for you? So for me, I have a distinct memory at sitting at a very large table with a lot of men and women in white suits, right? So they were obviously mm-hmm. doctors. And um, what I know now, being a professional, it was probably a treatment team meeting. But at seven, I was sitting at this large table and they were all discussing or what felt like arguing to me about what's wrong with me. Mm. And they couldn't actually figure out what's wrong with me, but they did agree on one thing that something was wrong with me. And so the message I got at that early age is that something's wrong with me and it's so bad, we don't even know what it is. Mm. And so a big part of that has been, and to this day, that message, like literally just now, me just saying that, I felt my heart rate increase just a little bit and my chest tighten. Right. And so that message today still has impact. So I wouldn't say that my work is done, right? Still human, still uh, having an impact. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of it has been going back to that little boy sitting at that table and letting him know that while they were doing their job to the best mm-hmm. of their ability, that I got some really bad messaging around that. And that that moment doesn't define who I am, even though it felt like my life was over in that moment, even before it had begun. And so a lot of that work has been going back into, as you said, parenting that Mm -hmm. little boy, giving him what he needed um, because his parents weren't around during that time. You know, mom would come, you know, at every visitation, um, but then she would go, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of the work has been about just taking care of that little boy and letting him know that. While the world may not have known what to do with him or how to meet his needs, that that was more about the world not being skilled mm-hmm. rather than something being wrong with him. Oh, good gracious. That's powerful. That's heavy. That's good. And so I hope anybody out there listening, you know, I know Mark was uh, brave and kind enough to share your own experience, but the words that you used in affirming that younger part If there's anybody out there that needs to be affirmed in that way, whether it be a certain age or even in your current 
day-to-day reality, I say today, mm-hmm. today you're feeling really overwhelmed. You feel like the world is too much. You're wondering if there is going to be a tomorrow. Um, I want you to hear from Mark. I want you to hear from me, Mackenzie. Uh, there's more to your story. There's a, there's another day here for you. And if nobody's told you that, let us be one of the first. Yeah. And if there is breath in your body, there is hope for the future. Ah, isn't Mark's story so good? So good. And the last one is Roy Feek. And what's fun is that we recorded this interview way before the pandemic hit. We were kind of on the front end of this process. Um, and he and Miles sat down together. And I have heard him do other interviews since, and I am always struck with his authenticity and the way that he shows up wholeheartedly and generous to share a story. And if you don't know Rory, I really encourage you to go back and listen to the whole interview because he is such an incredible storyteller. And I had trouble picking one little section of his his interview because he is such a beautiful storyteller. Yeah, he's been through a ton. and. Um, he's just so open about that experience, and I feel like his perspective coming out of a lot of a hardship is something that we can all learn from. That was very profound for me, to realize that my wife had somehow, God using my wife, had picked me from obscurity, a single father with no character at the time, in the Bluebird Cafe, singing songs, thinking that that was all I was ever going to be or do, and delivered me to a place to where I could do more than that. It's just, it's mind-blowing. And so that happened at OnSite. And everyone I know has had similar experiences to where they've had release, they've had um, profound moments and understanding. And um, so... That's wow. great. So thank you for that. Thank wow. you for what you're doing. Thank you for your part in helping me understand some of the story that I'm part of. It's a strange thing. You know, my wife's buried in the cemetery behind our house and I'm raising a five-year-old little girl without her. That wouldn't qualify as a happy ending, but it's a pretty joy-filled ending. Yeah. And first off, it's not an ending. It's a beginning. They're all beginnings. All the endings are beginnings of something else. But that's been a thing that I've kind of come to understand. In the story you were talking about, uh, the journey, a hero's journey, right? Mm -hmm. You know, stories are filled with incredible ups and downs. And sometimes they're at the same time. The highest peak that you're on, you're also personally on some lowest peak. And rather than how I've probably looked at them in the past, which was like, I just want to avoid all the lowest peaks. I don't want to avoid those. That's where the magic is. And I think it's such a gift for me. And, you know, maybe it changed down the road, but somehow in spite of all of that, I wake up in the morning and pinching myself that I'm so lucky. Mm. How, how do you do that in in the situation? I think it's just because, you know, you, our definition of happy ending isn't what we think it is. You know what I mean? Like, I got to be part of something amazing. I didn't deserve to be part of it. I'm still part of it. I get to make something amazing tomorrow. It's It's pretty great. 
So if you need some tissues after that clip, I don't blame you. Um, it was so beautiful. And the way that he talks about grief and the way that he is embracing his story is just so beautiful. Lindsay, what an incredible year we've had. I know. Fun to look back on all the memories and all the conversations and all the learnings mm-hmm. that we've had together and can't wait to be a part of the Living Center podcast next year. Y'all, we are so thankful for you. Thanks for showing up. Thanks for tuning in every week as we explore what it means to be human, um, what unites us all and how we can all uh, seek to live more centered and more grounded into who we truly are, reclaiming and rooting into who we are. So we had such an incredible year of interviews and we've picked just 11 today to highlight. Um, But if you're listening on Spotify, we created a playlist of our best of 2021 so that you can easily access all of the interviews that we're going to give you clips from today. And we've created a few other playlists uh, just to help you explore and better understand some of the lots of interviews we've done this year. Thank you for listening today and for committing valuable time to share space with these powerful stories. Make sure you hit subscribe to get all of our inspiring conversations with these incredible people delivered directly to you. And if you found this conversation particularly impactful, consider supporting the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. When our emotional health is suffering, many of us begin to feel alone and overwhelmed. If you're in that place right now, we deeply encourage you to ask for help. If OnSite can support you in connecting the dots with one of our programs or other offerings, our admissions team would love to connect with you. Simply call 1-800-341-7432 or visit onsiteworkshops.com.